Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 139. In this episode, we're talking about how art shapes empathy with Dr. Mary McCampbell. Dr. Mary McCampbell is Associate Professor of Humanities at Lee University in Tennessee, and she's the author of the book that we're discussing today, Imagining Our Neighbors as Ourselves, How Art Shapes Empathy, published by Fortress. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Amber, this was a fantastic conversation with Dr. McCampbell. It was lovely to dig into the insights of her book, this idea that art can really shape our ability to be empathetic towards, towards other people and to recognize that we all share the image of God and that we're all walking through this life together with the same human condition. What were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Dr. McCampbell? What I really appreciated about this conversation and also the book is the way that Dr. McCampbell thinks about how art is not just this pretty thing that we go and see or something that hangs in a gallery or in a movie theater, but it is something that cultivates our empathic imagination, meaning it's going to actually change the way that we then leave that artistic experience and then go and see the world. And for Christians, it's actually part of coming to love God and our neighbor more deeply and more fully. I also really appreciated how she thinks about art as being, as having a prophetic voice, as helping us to see our world more clearly and to call us maybe out of our echo chambers to see beyond them. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Mary McCampbell. Well, Dr. McCampbell, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm really excited to talk to you. So we're excited to talk about your new book, uh, Imagining Our Neighbors as Ourselves, uh, How Art Shapes Empathy. And I love that title. I, I love kind of the the parallel between imagination and love, right? The second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm wondering, as we kind of open up this conversation, if you could tell us a bit about how exactly uh, imagination in particular helps us to love our neighbors well. Yes. Well, I'll, I'll start with, I mean, it's at the opening of the book, I think of a large part of where I... Although, although I've seen that connection so much, especially in my teaching, um, I think it really kind of solidified in my mind uh, from the Graham Greene quote from uh, the power and the glory when the whiskey priest, who's a very problematic character, but someone who loves God and really seems to have a sense of, he, he knows that he needs to love his neighbor, even though it's a hard thing to do. Um, and he's in prison with uh, a woman called a pious, she's called a pious woman. And it kind of like in Flannery O'Connor stories, the pious people are the worst. <laughs> and, and this pious woman um, is really mean to him because, uh, you know, he's, he's, smells like alcohol, he's had a child out of wedlock, all of these things. And she tells him she wished he would be better off dead. 
And at that moment, he realizes that he needs to like look closely at her and try to see the image of God in her and try to imagine, you know, what it's like to be her. And then there's this very famous line, hate was just a failure of imagination. So that line really just sent my mind spinning, you know, sort of for years on it. Um, the idea that um, in order to really love better, um, we need to, I mean, part of it is slowing down, having patience, having eyes to see and ears to hear. And um, the more that you can learn about someone else's life, the easier it is to imagine what it's like to be in their place and to feel what they're feeling. And yes, I just, I just think it, it takes the imagination um, because we, you know, we look at the incarnation of Christ and we think this is the greatest act of empathy ever. He's, he's literally, you know, embodied human beings and sacrificed himself for us. And that we are called to also try to take on the burdens of others and live kind of incarnationally in that sense, but we don't have the capacity Christ does. And so I'm thinking about our imagination, giving us that capacity of course, not as much, but to really try to feel the way other feel others feel so that we can humanize them rather than just label them. I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit. One of, one of the things that I love asking authors is um, why this book, why now? So what, what was it about this moment in which we find ourselves that you thought this is just something that needs to be put out there. And I, in particular, I'm wondering about this notion of imagination and empathy. Do you think that we live in an age where our imaginations are malnourished um, and that that is affecting our empathy? Or are we kind of in a crisis of empathy? If so, what do you think the causes of that might be? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I think, again, I'm just thinking from within American culture here, what I, you know, my experience, and I live in the deep south. And, you know, with things that have happened in the US politically the past six years, the pandemic, there's been a lot of pressure applied and things that were buried underneath have come up above ground, whether that's racism, or the dangers of a a, a real allegiance to a hyper rugged individualism. Um, the, these things that are really <laughs> have always been problematic, but they've been kind of toned down perhaps and made acceptable. Um, and, but we've seen them come up above ground and it's, it's forced us into, I think, uh, a renewed extreme tribalism uh, and divisiveness. And so yeah, I, I would say I do think, I mean, I think this is the way human beings always have been. I don't think human nature changes. And I think it's in the United States, yeah, I mean, so many of our, our issues are things that have been there from the beginning, um, but we don't necessarily want to speak openly about and deal with, and that makes it worse, like a festering cancer sort of thing. But there's been a kind of empowering recently of hyper-individualism and racism and, and a, a renormalizing of these things. And a lot of that though comes from uh, just an inability to really imagine what it's like to be another person. I mean, how many times have I heard a white person when something is said about uh, interaction with uh, the police 
that's happened to a black person, a white person say, well, I don't believe that's never happened to me. <laughs> um, and this is really even just as problematic in the church. And it's, but it's easy to just rely on your own experiences. Um, but I, I feel like actually my students, I've learned so much from my students, especially students of color, hearing their experiences uh, that have helped me to think past, think, think through that. But I do want to say that I also, I'm, I don't want to just point the finger and say, oh, look at all those tribalistic, you know, look at all that divisiveness. I find it very hard to empathize with people who show no empathy themselves. That's the hardest. <laughs> so in writing this book, it's not because I haven't mastered. It's because I keep needing to be reminded. I keep needing to go through these exercises. So... Yeah, it's, it's so interesting I, that you make this really powerful case for how art kind of feeds our empathic imagination or it nourishes our empathic imagination. And one of the things that I, I ask my students, because I, I also teach a, kind of an aesthetics course, is um, I show them pictures, uh, portraits from Kehinde Wiley. Mm -hmm. who just has this amazing, I mean, so amazing and so creative, the way that he takes the tradition of portraiture um, and then uses it to allow these faces of the other, and they're not even like distant others, right? It's like people on the streets right in front of us to kind of confront us. And it's this like seeing the face of the other kind of evokes that empathic imagination. Like you can't just ignore me or put me in a box or, you know, put your perspective and wallpaper it over me right and art like kind of confronts us with that but there's also so many ways in which I think there's things around us that starve that empathic imagination one thing I like to think about with my students is what are things in our world that starve our empathic imp uh, imagination or prohibit us from being able to see one another in that way. And we've talked a lot about like social media and how it kind of curates your own like kind of self-contained world um, and how that can actually have the opposite effect that art does. I'm wondering if you've thought any more about other ways that maybe the world around us starves our empathic imagination and how art can be kind of this counter force to that here and now. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm actually thinking about how there is art that actually starves our empathic imagination. There are art forms that, I mean, because these persistent cultural engagements that we have are so formative but they're formative often in ways that we don't immediately perceive. And I'm especially thinking about students, you know, people that are much younger. I mean, this can happen all of our lives, but I'm especially thinking, you know, you know students that are quite, maybe quite young and haven't learned real kind of discernment. Um, and I'm just thinking how many, so I'm using art broadly because it, 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 this gets into a whole question of what's the difference between good art and bad art and what's art and what's not art. But I'm just even thinking about um, the kind of music, the kind of films, the kind of television shows. And even within that um, kind of Christian art genre sort of thing, like I recently watched God's Not Dead and don't ask. I was writing an article and, whew, um, but I really felt like this can be dangerous because 
the, the caricaturing, it was just, it was such a formulaic presentation of what it's like to be human and the nature of reality. And there's so many, there's so many popular, you know, mainstream art forms that do that. Adorno, you know, the act of the kind of standardization you know, that it's going to be consumed easily and you're, you're kind of telling the people what they want and they think it meets a particular need, but they're being formed in its image. And when it's like very simple and very formulaic, then how does it, how are we taught, how do we internalize um, the way we think of other people? And I'm not even talking about something like overt racism. I'm talking about just a uh, a, a greatly reductionist picture of the human experience so that when your life doesn't work out the way this character that you've seen in these 15 films, you know, has happened, then you think what's wrong with me or I don't know, you create standards based on this, this really reductive illusion. Um, and so I think that can be very problematic. And I see, I mean, even the kind of Disneyfication of understanding of reality, because not all art really leads us, helps us to be empathetic. Some of it works in the opposite direction. So how do you choose is a big question. Like how can you be discerning? But I, I like to argue that I think any good piece of art should really show the human condition as both, um, well, I use Pascal's terms, wretched and glorious. And the kind of inner wrestling with those, those, and how that's, it's hard. Life is hard. <laughs> um, we did a series a year and a half ago on, on our short little series. And one of the uh, conversations that we had was with Dr. Gregory Thornbury. And he talked about Christian art in particular. He said, you know, Christian is a better noun than an adjective. But that was a really great line. And I also appreciated how he talked about like God's not dead and other, other films and uh, pieces of Christian art like this, where he, he likened it to professional wrestling. And he uses this uh, phrase called uh, kayfabe, um, which has been kind of like a favorite term uh, of mine in, in, re in the last little bit, thinking about the way that professional wrestlers will kind of, you know, stage, you know, certain outcomes and certain sequences in their fighting. Sometimes it, it kind of gets real and they call that shoot, but otherwise it's, it's kayfabe. It's just this kind of pretend tension and sort of violence and God's not dead. And these other kind of Christian pieces of art are, are really that they're, they're, they're prescribed predetermined outcomes. We know that we're going to take down this atheist uh, philosopher professor uh, because we've got all these great little answers and we don't need to hear, we're not going to hear the, the pushback or the responses or any of that. We're just going to take them down. We're going to win and we can go home satisfied and it's kayfabe. And it's, it's uh, you know, it's not actually, yeah, like you said, it's not presenting the human condition and it's not, it's not honest engagement with these uh, issues. Yes, and it doesn't it doesn't encourage us to think of others as better than ourselves if we're looking biblically, because I just remember there's a scene with two of the people from Duck Dynasty or one of the guys from Duck Dynasty and his wife and and there's a there's a character in there a woman who is a liberal liberal journalist and she's just so hateful and so. She just is like on the attack and it, it makes the Christians look like really meek and really kind. And it makes all the, the liberals 
and and there's a story of a woman who wants to be a Christian, but she's a Muslim, and so her father beats her. And the thing is, it's not that none of these things have ever occurred. Certainly, there are stories like that, but the fact that they've chosen these these caricatures, and so I, I you know, so someone could argue, oh, it's teaching Christians to be meek and kind. But it's not because it's showing Christians that these other people are just kind of the enemy and you have to, I, I don't know, it's, it's just such a non-nuanced picture of what someone is if they're an atheist or what someone is if they're a liberal journalist. Um, and so it's training, it's a constricting of the imagination. Or it's, it's only imagining in a certain direction because imagination can also be dangerous. You know, like, let me, let me invent this idea of, especially if I'm angry at someone or if I'm upset, um, let me in, just imagine what they're doing or the things about them I don't like. So imagination can really go in the wrong direction. And I think a work like this kind of does that. Yeah, you talk about this in your book. Um, you talk about the, how prophetic art resists oversimplification. And I thought that was a great way to put it because things like God's not dead, for example, you know, not only would probably no atheist we know not identify with the atheist in the film as, you know, it's like, that's not me. I'm not like that much of a terrible person, you know, but probably not very many of us Christians would identify with the Christians in the film as like walking around with these halos and always having the perfect thing to say. And, you know, somehow magically being able to take down your tenure track professor with these like three jujitsu moves, you know, like that's, that's not even true of us. And it, it's more of a performance art where you're kind of commodifying something and sort of giving the people what they want per Adorno. But I love how you talk about prophetic art actually resisting that. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about what you mean by prophetic art and what are the features of that? Yeah, I mean, um, prophetic in the sense that uh, prophetic art is disclosing something, you know, prophetic in the sense of um, disclosing the truth, like pulling back the curtain and maybe even showing um showing the true nature of reality and also showing what needs to be changed you know what is right and was it what is wrong and um certainly you know there's a lot of good satire that, that does this and there's so many different forms of art but i think the prophetic yeah it's it's just telling the truth and it's 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 kind of um it's it's resisting uh the formulas and the facades and it's challenging us to really look at if we're talking about empathy you know what what is this person's life experience like what is it like to be um the young girl in um the hate you give who was in a car when her friend gets shot and killed uh and so there's something prophetic about a kind of a slow lingering over the daily life experience of being that young in a particular community and dealing with that kind of trauma. And, 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 and it's a, a novel like that, because I've talked before about it, it's you even have to watch it when it's um, dealing with something that, that relates to trauma, because it's kind of, is this a kind of trauma tourism, you know, where, Oh, I'm, you know, this is, interesting and shocking 
Um, but the prophetic, a prophetic type of art would resist that sensationalism and really gets down to the bone of what does it feel like to be human in this situation? And also encourages us to see the image of God in that person, even in hard situations, to always make that, you know, connection. So you talk a lot about the prophetic nature of, of art in your book, but then you also talk particularly in the, the very beginning about the empathic nature of art or the empathic capacities of art. And I, I was thinking a lot about, it kind of provoked me to think about the, the prophetic and the empathic and the differences between those two. So to kind of put it in more technical terms, like you know, let's call the, the prophetic akin to the hermeneutics of suspicion. So whether you're doing psychoanalytical kind of analysis on art or Marxist or feminist or critical race theory, whatever, um, the, the kind of posture of a hermeneutics of suspicion when it comes to reading art or text, whatever. And then I was thinking about this posture of empathy. And as you were talking about a hermeneutics of hospitality and this openness and the receptivity to maybe see things differently and take on a different perspective, it strikes me that those are two very important things, the prophetic and the empathic, and two very different hermeneutics, two very different ways of reading and approaching art. Both of them are very interested in discovery um, and learning. Um, but, you know, one is more truth telling and the other is more receptive. And so I'm wondering if, if you thought about the relationship between those two, are they just two different activities that are important for Christians to have or good readers to have, or if there's overlap, like what, what do you think about the differences between those two? I guess I see on some level, the relationship, I, I mean, again, it, there are so many angles to thinking about this kind of critical theory that's like, in the prophetic sense of peeling back layers, but I feel I feel like it's well. This is where it's really interesting when you read someone like Foucault, and he is showing us the power structures behind a particular understanding of reality, but he doesn't really apply it <laughs> to how we live our lives. But then you have someone like Bell Hooks who says in postmodern blackness, you know, she talks about, it's really, I, I really appreciate a lot of what, I mean, the, the, this, this kind of critical, this kind of deep, you know, post-structuralist deconstructionist, these stances are really helpful because in a way they're, they're ways to privilege voices that have often been ignored, but she talks about how it's kind of like an insular boys club. Well, she doesn't say that, but that's kind of what, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it's almost like, I mean, if you, if you've ever taught critical theory to undergraduates, I mean, my word, or if you've taken it at that, I and mean, even now, I mean, when I try to read Lacan, I feel stupid, you know, so I think if, if you think, um, you think in a way, it, it almost seems like it's the, the initial work of it is to pull back the layers, which I would think would hopefully lead to greater empathy for those who have been um, oppressed because of these systems, but Oftentimes, that's not really what these theorists do. Critical race theory does, though. 
Uh, I would say that critical race theory has a lot to do with empathy. And so that's why Bell Hooks in her writing, she ended up writing those three books about love and Cornel West. And, you know, maybe the connection between the hermeneutic of suspicion and um, liberation theology. Uh, so, but uh, hermeneutic of suspicion, again, I don't see it, it depends on who you're reading, but I don't see it so much a suspicion towards other human beings. It's a suspicion towards institutions and systems. And I would hope that that would then push us closer to caring about the actual human. But then of course, Foucault would say, but there is no such thing as human nature and humans themselves are just constructs. So that's when it constructs. So then that's when it can push you away from the idea of empathy. So no, I, I think your book kind of provoked that question for me and in, in helping me think that both uh, the prophetic voice um, and, and sort of that empathic reading, that they're both deeply Christian um, and they're both incredibly important there definitely should be kind of one leading to the other and in this continual dialectical process. But, you know, one would be looking at something and asking questions of it, right? The other would be looking at something and allowing it to ask questions of me, right? And, and there are two totally different kinds of structural, there are different structures of experience, but equally important. And so I think, I think what's important for Christians is to remember to have both of them, right? Like not just to have one or the other, but to have both. And art is so fascinating because it requires both of them from us. Um, Yeah. Yes. One of the things I really love about your book is how you address a lot of these, you know, theoretical topics and issues uh, with very specific examples from popular culture. Um, So there were a number of uh, instances where I was really excited about the discussion because I was a big fan of this show or that book or that album. And, and as we're talking about, you know, the way that art develops uh, empathy within us uh, for other humans and other people, one of the experiences that I had with one of the pieces that you address uh, specifically Sufjan Stevens album, the age of odds is actually empathy for the artist specifically. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your thoughts on, on that, that album by Sufjan Stevens. Yes. And well, by the side note, it's just interesting that you asked me about the hermeneutics of suspicion because I have another, okay. I have, I have to confess I've written about that album in like three different places because <laughs> not because it's my favorite, but because it confused me and, and troubled me, but I have an article in a book isn't it ironic? It's, it's a collection of essays about irony and pop culture. And I have an article, an essay, a chapter in there about that album and also an album by The Hold Steady. And I lead in with Ricoeur and the Hermeneutics of Suspicion and talk about its irony and sincerity, etc. So anyway, but um, yeah, so that album really, I mean, I've been a longtime Sufjan fan and his, well, I feel like all of his music really draws me in into a deeper sense of empathy. Um, I don't, and he's, it's just so relatable. Uh, but then the Age of Odds, which I really like, I like the genre of music. It was a real turn with a kind of more electronic and some noise and chaos and, but 
I was really confused when I saw, when I went to the concert to see it live and I hadn't listened to the album yet, which was a bad, has <laughs> that happened to you too? That that was my experience. I, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about the, the concert. Yeah, please keep going. Okay. And so I, I listened to, I went and after a while, like I felt just kind of overwhelmed, like saturated with some of the, um, I don't know, especially the, 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 the video for too much. That's really, really big and really bright and in your face. But I think it's supposed to be that way. It's too much, too much, too much. Um, and there's just so, it's just so ironic. And so, I don't know, very in your face, but the last song, which is like 20 something minutes long, impossible soul, but it's talking about that when you die, you rot and all of these things, but this, I don't know if you were there, what happens in the concert was it turns into this big party and this big spaceship comes down on stage and they're all dressed up, kind of like kids dress up, like aluminum foil hats, headdresses and balloons coming down, everybody in the audience popping balloons and people are laughing and dancing. And I just, I sat there and cried. <laughs> I was so confused because I just thought this is, it really felt to me like eat, drink and be happy for tomorrow you die. It felt like, I mean, the more I thought about it, I was like, this feels like a Dada art performance. It's like, it's like laughing into the void. And it was so disturbing for me. And I'm like, what's happened to Sufjan? <laughs> so that's why I ended up going into. So what's interesting is because of that very uncomfortable, and this is where we can even get into discussion of the form of art and how that very uncomfortable experience, because I already had such a relationship with his music, it pushed me into like, I've got to figure out what's going on here. This is really troubling me. And it really helped me when I saw, I read where he said, and I can't remember if I mentioned it in, this, in the book or not, I don't think I do, but where he says that he saw this album as kind of like a Woody Allen movie, um, that it's dealing with these very serious topics, but on this kind of slap, but making this kind of, you know, surface slapstick level, but really it's to push you into thinking more deeply about these serious topics of life. Um, but, uh, you know, the more I looked at it, I, I realized that this was, you know, he wrote this, I believe, when he was very ill with some virus, he didn't know what it was. And in the, um, I think he's really questioning uh, the nature of reality itself, his faith, his role as an artist and he's really struggling. He's also self-critiquing. He's, he's, he's kind of picturing himself as like a, a celebrity narcissist um, and questioning his understanding of love and relationship and, the, and also questioning the, prof, the prophetic nature of art. Who am I to say that I have some prophetic word that I can actually give something to someone else? And I don't know, what, what are your thoughts? Oh, I mean, that's, that's fantastic. I love hearing that. It was, it was such a wonderful experience going to the show because I similarly didn't listen to it, but, I, but that was uh, really by choice. I, 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 um, I had a lot of friends talking about it and a lot of friends were saying like, oh, it's so weird. It's so different from, you know, seven swans or come on, Philly, Illinois or whatever, you know, all that is like, oh, this is just getting really weird. And, uh, and I was like, 
well, I'm going to go see it and I'm going to hear it the way it's, you know, meant to be heard. And I'm going to experience it that way. And I'm really glad I did that. And, you know, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely very different. I mean, it harkens back to his old stuff, like you mentioned, but what I really appreciated was um, about midway through the set, he like stopped and explained the album. He like talked about the, the, the rationale, like behind it all. And at least what he shared with us, I don't know if he also um, did that when, when, uh, when you saw him, but he, but he explained that, um, you know, some of the things that you had said, but in addition, he, he had just gone through this uh, breakup and it was this real uh, like devastating experience. And he was um, really kind of, um, you know, distraught. And he, he came upon uh, the artist Royal Robertson, who's, who's, who's the one whose art is, you know, utilized throughout the album artwork. And he was really struck by, on the one hand, the real, let's say kind of childish like uh vibe that his art has it's it very much looks like doodles and you know things like that but it's this like real simple artwork that's apocalyptic in nature end of the world type stuff but what he was also struck by he told us was that in the midst of these art pieces you know because Royal robertson kind of went crazy he kind of became a shut-in and was really kind of like conspiratorial these sorts of things but he um he would write in the bottom of some of these art pieces he would he would refer to his i think um divorced wife adele he would say you know like nasty things about her you know in in the in in the bottom of these art pieces and so he was he was kind of struck by this idea of this kind of like, you know, sort of like simplistic use of artistic media with apocalyptic end of the world stuff, juxtaposing end of relationships. And so he he felt like he wanted to do that at an audio level and, and you know, you do that with sound. And that's why you get a lot of those weird beeps and bops and zips and, you know, weird little noises. Um, and then also that kind of sci-fi kind of vibe that you get through most of the album. And when he explained that, you know, like I was saying about how uh, this album in particular, I really felt a lot of empathy for him. So the more I've, I've gone back and listened to the album, the more I just, and, and of course, Carrie and Lowell to follow. I mean, my goodness, how can you not? Uh, but just with Age of Odds, hearing his story, hearing how how he thought through, you know, the design of the album. I just loved every little bit of it. And and even though some people find it really off-putting and, and a little too different, I mean, I think because I got to hear his story and I felt such deep empathy for him, I absolutely love that that piece of work. It's it is, it's just absolutely brilliant. He didn't talk about a breakup when I saw it, I don't think, but but I'm certainly about Royal Robertson. And it's interesting because Royal Robertson was schizophrenic. And so I, I felt like, and he'd set himself up as like the prophet or the king. And so I felt like Sufjan was also asking, am I, it, 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 that, that age old theme in literature, um, what is artistry and what is mental illness? <laughs> what is prophetic? It's kind of like, I don't know if you're familiar with REM's relationship with um, Howard Finster, who's another folk artist, but they have a song called Maps and Legends, and where they're basically asking, you know, is this man a genius? Is he a prophet or is he insane? And I felt like Coswell Robertson that also, I, I just felt like this entire album, and he said in our concert, it was like a therapy session. <laughs> like he's psychoanalyzing himself. But it's so relatable on so many on so many levels. Um, 
and just like Carrie and Lowell with listening to Carrie and Lowell it's like I, I felt such deep empathy for him but I almost felt just a broader sense of empathy for just the human condition and how how you know helpless we are and how confused we're just tangled up inside yeah, it, it's it's like it's like the song Fourth of July, like, you know, just so simple. We're all going to die. Like the way he the way he delivers that is just so breathtaking. Yes, yes. Also, the way he he at times you can't tell is he talking about a lover? Is he talking about his mother or is he talking about God? And the way all three of those are so tangled up in our minds um, and how how confusing that is and how painful that can be and so yeah I, I remember when that first came out and I was and I after like two weeks of listening to it I thought I, I can't keep listening to this onto the way to school because then I have to go in the bathroom and like clean under my eyes all the all the mascara that's because <laughs> it just really it really moved me so but that's Sufjan yeah I'm wondering I didn't see this in your book so correct me if I'm wrong. Do you talk about um, Paul Schrader films at all, like First Reformed? No, I don't. I don't. Um... Yeah, that was kind of a, I recently saw First Reformed, actually. And, and it was such an interesting experience for me because I think when you were talking about how good art sort of exalts humanity, like shows both the glory and the wretchedness or whatever you say of, of humanity, I think that film captures it in in so many ways um but it's one of these perplexing films that at the end you don't have you, you quoted david dark like something a nice cupcake ending yeah a triumphal cupcake ending i love <laughs> a triumphal cupcake ending i that's so so great because it, i mean i was watching this this film and then at the end i was just like wait what wait, what, what, you know, and then like credits roll and you're just like, I'm not entirely sure what happened. But the more you sit and think about it and what was going on, the more you're like, okay, I actually love this ending, you know? Um, but the thing about First Reformed is I feel like it, it evoked a kind of, it, it was so challenging, right? It was hard for me to put pieces together, hard for me to understand certain parts of it. Why did he do this? I don't, that didn't seem like a logical progression to me. But I think that experience of my own bewilderment was, was one of those like empathic exercises, <laughs> almost a challenge of like, yeah, that doesn't seem natural to you. But if you put yourself completely in his shoes, that does actually seem yeah. like a natural next step, you know? But so I wonder if sometimes those experiences that we have in viewing art, they're not exactly pleasant. They no. can be a little bit jarring, but maybe that is actually like those muscles working or that's it doing its work on us. Absolutely. And the, the sad thing, though, is, and again, I can only speak really to American culture, because I think other, there are other cultures that do much better with this, but especially with thinking about film, I feel like with American culture, again, we're, there's such a, there's such a promotion of heavily streamlined formulaic narratives, that something that makes you feel uncomfortable is, I mean, because we've been trained as consumers. We've been trained as, I like it, I don't like it, rather than this makes me uncomfortable, let me push into it and try to understand why. But I think if we allow ourselves to do that, then that is where we can come up out the other side more empathetic. 
but it's, I mean, this is one reason why I think education in general is so important um, because in the classroom, if, if, you know, you kind of forcing students to be attentive with text that oftentimes they might just run away from because it's uncomfortable or it's complicated. But I'm thinking about the tree of life, which I love so much, but I can't remember if I put this little antidote in the book at all. I can't, I can't remember, but I saw something around the, on the internet that when it first came out, people were going to see it thinking, oh, it's a Brad Pitt movie. And Brad Pitt has been in some good movies, but he's also been in some awful movies, right? And he's very mainstream. And so they're expecting more of a tidy, satisfying narrative rather than just abstraction, 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 right? Um, And apparently there was one movie theater that put a sign on the window because so many people had left and were asking to get their money back. And they put a sign up like, this is a nonlinear art film. We will not give you your money back. (laughs) But it just made, and it was interesting that people, they weren't just like, oh, I'm bored. They were mad. And I think that's very interesting. Like, just almost a sense of you're making me think too much. You're confusing me. And I see that in the classroom sometimes. And, and, and as I tell people, students, I'm like, you can't use the, the, the adjective weird anymore. You got to tell me what's actually going on. It's not just weird. <laughs> well, and this idea of art making people mad. I mean, of course, recently we've just seen the trailer for the new Little Mermaid film, and oh, a lot of gosh. a lot of people are losing their absolute minds um, uh, about representation and just what what a what a complete lack of empathy uh, uh, in 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 this regard. I mean, I think it has over a million dislikes on YouTube, which is just um, horrendous. Uh, and what? Yeah, something like that. And, um, you know, I mean, (laughs) there's all kinds of great memes going around, like, you know, people who are most upset about this worship a white Jesus, you know, like (laughs) things like that. Right. Which is just I mean, you could go down the list of all the ways that we um, have made made uh, various various characters white. I mean, I think of Last Samurai with Tom Cruise, for example. I mean, the list goes on. It gets, you know, really absurd, right? Um, but, the, but the thing about The Little Mermaid that I've been thinking about a lot recently uh, is having having just visited Copenhagen recently, and I know Amber spent a lot of time there so she could jump in, but, you know, because Hans Christian Andersen, right, he's from Copenhagen, and and he's buried there, and, and uh, there's this Little Mermaid statue in the harbor, and um, what's so amazing to me about the Little Mermaid story, you know, you talked earlier about the Disneyfication of everything, right? And the kind of formulaic nature of uh, fairy tales. Um, obviously, that story has been changed, right? I mean, it's a really dark and kind of sad story when you yes. when you dig into the original. Um, and what I find so uh, kind of terrifying, actually, in terms of this issue of empathy is when you when you go and check out the statue, one of the things that uh, they'll tell you if you take a tour is that uh, this statue has been around for a long time and it's been decapitated and it's been dismembered uh, and they've had to reassemble they've had to reassemble it. And what strikes me as so sad about this is what the little mermaid represents, right? Uh, somebody who wants to be, you know, up, up where they walk, up where they run and where they, you know, play all day in the sun or whatever the hell the line is. But just that, uh, just, just that idea that like, 
she wants to be one of us and we won't let her, right? Like we'll decapitate her and dismember her. And then thinking about that in terms of representation, right? We won't let her be one of us. That I just, I can't stop thinking about that. I had not, I did not know that about the sculpture and that is really fascinating. And I mean, this makes me think, that really makes me think of um, some year, do you know the Wiz? that was like the African-American version of the Wizard of Oz. And the original one had Michael Jackson and Diana Ross in it. And it was great. When I was little, I loved it. And they did a live remake up on remake of it. Like, I don't know, 10 years ago on network TV. And I just remember the anger, all the com- same sort of thing. But to me, this is where also we see that a lack of empathy also comes with a lack of self-reflection um, because this, I saw somebody saying, wouldn't they be upset if we made an all white Wizard of Oz? <laughs> and I was like, have you seen the Wizard of Oz? <laughs> but, it, and then people like, yeah, yeah. But it was just like, there's a real lack of recognizing their position, um, but, but the, the, I don't know, ha- have you two seen the videos of, on the good side of the Little Mermaid thing? Have you seen all the videos of the reactions of the little girls, little black girls seeing um, Ariel and just being like, whoa, and it's so beautiful and they've been passed around. And this is where I know earlier you'd mentioned about social media and curating uh, and kind of being in a bit of an echo chamber and it can push against empathy. But I've, I've also found a lot of experience where social media has helped my empathy grow in some areas. And this is one, that's one really good example. You feel like you're, you're um, experiencing something, um, seeing the joy on this child's face, but yeah. So that's the only thing you let yourself watch. That, that is the, yeah, I, I deliberately chosen not to watch the, um, the videos of people reacting uh, harshly, negatively, et cetera. I've only watched the positive uh, videos that you've just described uh, on purpose. I'd, I'm not interested in watching people be disciplined. It's just, it's just racism. I, I'm not interested. Yeah. And I love just this general theme that, that we're kind of marching around of just how art taps into this deeper dimension of it, it's the, the disclosure of the Imago Dei, and, and you discuss this in your book as well, that in kind of a, a world that runs on productivity and efficiency and, you know, making things happen and getting through our day and selling all the products and all this stuff, um, so much of what we do and so much of our energy is towards that. And then art in that world is this very disruptive thing that says, no, but this is a medium through which the human and the other can be made manifest to me. Um, the Imago Dei and the other can be made manifest to me. There's a lot deeper going on than just our typical like economic exchange and productivity um, utility that we 
that fuels our world. And it's, it's almost like it's a, a prophetic stop to our very world, like the presence of art to show us this, this deeper dimension and what a power that it has. Like the fact that you can get mad over art, <laughs> it just shows like there's something really deep and really powerful going on here. This is not just like pretty canvases decorating a room, right? There's some like deep spiritual dimensions of art and it has a, a spiritual impact either for, for good or for ill. Yes, I love that. I remember like, I think Francis Schaeffer in Art in the Bible, I think it was Art in the Bible talks about how one of the problems in the in the evangelical American church was they, the, the tendency to think of art as just window dressing uh, as opposed, or like, just, you know, it's very secondary. Whereas I heard, I, I've said this so many places, but I heard Mako Fujimura talk once about how he thinks that when someone plants a church, uh, after the pastor, the next person you should make sure to get on board as an artist because of that connection with the prophetic. And I mean, artists, I mean, when we're talking about a spiritual reality, and that also includes the human experience, the, the deep mystery of what it means to be human, um, it, this is not just something you can explain propositionally. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's veering into a very, uh, abstract, mysterious <laughs> level, which is amazing and also kind of scary. And so the way the, the way the arts can, I don't know, it, it, you just can't even put it into words, really, um, what art can do to help us understand more of God and more of each other. Uh, it's, it's, it's beyond, or what does O'Connor say? She talks about it's the, the lines of spiritual motion, that that's what good art should really be tracing. They're the lines of spiritual motion. And, and the, I think I talked about this in the book at the end of A Good Man is Hard to Find, which there's been a car wreck and there's been a murder by a serial killer. And she says, well, you shouldn't be looking at the dead bodies on the side of the road are the cars, you should be looking for the lines of spiritual motion. And so it makes me, that makes me think again about that thing with the tree of life. Like if we have been trained by formulaic bad art to just look for the surface, the same old, same old story, uh, then we're missing the, the lines of spiritual motion. So we need to kind of train ourselves to see that, which of course deeply connects to training ourselves to be more empathetic. So I love that. And I love the idea of churches having resident artists. I think that is a fantastic idea. And I just love this whole, this whole notion that you're uh, pointing out and drawing us towards this idea that art can help us develop empathy for one another. It's really important as, as you discussed, it's really important now uh, that we develop in these ways. And so just really appreciate you joining us and, and talking about the importance of art and imagination with us. Thank you. This has been both fun and really enriching and challenging. So I really, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.